everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Pierre Byland, welcome to the What Is Money show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, you have written a book recently that caught my attention. Uh, and just by way of quick introduction, you are the senior fellow of the Mises Institute and associate professor of entrepreneurship. And this is actually your third book that caught my attention, which is titled How to Think About the Economy. And I think you were saying it's the first one you have written for a general audience. Um, could you please start out just by telling us a little bit about what you do at the Mises Institute and how you got into economic science more generally? Yeah, those are, well, I mean, the second one is a pretty big question, but I mean, at the Mises Institute as a senior fellow, what I do is I, I, I write and I represent, and I, I suppose that is it, but I'm one of the few of the senior fellows, there are fellows as well, and associated scholars, um, and the people who are either doing work directly in Austrian economics or who are really interested in it and 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 read a lot and talk talk about those things. Um, so I, I give speeches, I write articles, I write books, that sort of thing. Very cool. And then what is the, uh, you mentioned the Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship. Um, is that more focused on entrepreneurial activities or is that sort of in the same vein as uh, 
as the senior fellow position? Well, I mean, it's a it's a scholarly field, so it's like in any other discipline. Um, of course, entrepreneurship is very hands on and very practical rather than theoretical. Mm -hmm. It's it's trying. It's a field that's sort of trying to become a, a, an academic field, uh, more like economics or physics or or what have you. So, my job as a as a professor is like any other professor at a at a large university. I do research, uh, so I publish in peer reviewed journals, and I teach. And I do service, which means spend I spend endless time at worrying committee meetings. <laughs> but I mean, those are the three three main parts of, of the job as a professor. Very cool. So this, um, yeah, this book I, I think I saw this on Twitter originally. Uh, again, title is "How to Think About the Economy." Um, I think you've done an excellent job of distilling some of these complex areas of praxeology and economic science into something generally accessible. Um, so what I thought we'd do today is just go through the book, read some excerpts and talk about what you wrote. Um, so the first excerpt here, and I'm on page 15 in your book, you wrote that core to understanding the economy is recognizing that it is about human actions and interactions. In fact, the economy is people acting and interacting. It is little or nothing else. We tend to think of the economy in terms of resources, machines, businesses, and per perhaps jobs. But that is a simplification that is misleading. Those are important, but they are all means to ends. The economy is about using means to attain ends. To put it differently, it is how we act to satisfy our wants, to make us better off. Simply put, the economy is about creating value. So, I, I mean, it's just such a great introduction. I just finished reading Hoppe's short but potent book. Oh, boy, I hope I've got the, it's ESAM. The title escapes me at the moment. The um, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, I believe. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. that's the right title. And it's just so important to understand this domain of knowledge that it's not an empirical science, right? We're, we're deducing from kind of some basic realities that are inarguable. Um, and you're building a whole different type of knowledge, really. And I think you've just, you've done just a really good job here, generally introducing it. Um, so I, I'd love to hear just your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I wrestle with quite a bit, uh, trying to, I mean, being an economist, talking to people, because people tend to think of science as highly uh, empirical and inductive too, that you go out and you collect a lot of data and you test hypotheses and you see what is going on. And to me, that doesn't make any sense at all when we're talking about people, because we're trying to understand what is what is going on in society and what is the economy and where does wealth come from, that sort of thing. Uh, where does this order come from? What, what, what do prices mean? Where do they, how, how come prices are formed or determined? how come resources are allocated in certain ways without any planner we still have these very advanced production processes that are sort of scattered across the globe and everything like that mm -hmm. so it's trying to make sense of all of this you, you can't really just step outside and, and collect data on stuff and then run regressions and and hope that you find something that sticks because everything is really based on and, and you read that there too that it's based on people acting 
And people act motivated by something that they personally find valuable. Mm -hmm. And personal valuation, this subjective value, sort of uh, what you usually call it, it's, it's something that you can't really measure. And you can't really... Uh, compare it between people either. So I, I can't say that in, in, in undergrad economics, uh, we tend to rely on things like utils, right? So it's a, mm -hmm. it's a measure of the utility we might get of some, from something. But <clears throat> I mean, that's a, a strong simplification. In real life, we can't really say that I like apples 1.25 utils, but you like apples 1.4 utils. And that, that means that if you take an apple from me and give it to you, then society overall is better off. But but it doesn't really work like that because you can like apples and I can like apples. But how do we compare the two? There, there's no unit for for value and satisfaction, right? It's it's on our own terms, and it also changes all the time. So the problem with studying things empirically is that anything that we can observe and can measure are really the outcomes of mechanisms and processes in in human interaction, where people are acting based on on what they personally value. And what ma what matters then is is not really the outcome, which can change just because people have different ideas and they learn stuff and they, they see some another shiny object object basically, or or they they just change their minds or whatever it might be. So the outcome changes all the time, but what doesn't change is why we act and what happens when we interact with people. So in order to just figure out what the heck is it that we're observing we need a theory to begin with. I mean, it, it, it's a simple example that that I use sometimes is the concept of a company. I mean, if you have an alien coming to Earth and just observing what human beings do, they could, they could observe a building um, and they could see that people show up every morning at 8 a.m. and they, they might leave for a bit oh, between 12 and 1, say, and then they leave again at 5 and all of them do. But you don't know anything about what the heck they're doing there. And you have no idea that they identify with being employees of different businesses that produce different things. And they have, have a different culture in those businesses and all these things. But we understand those this as human beings because we've been there, right? So we have this, this uh, prior understanding of all of these things that we that are important in our actions. Mm -hmm. So we... We buy a computer from Apple or, or from Microsoft, but it's not really what you can observe. What you can observe is that you go to a certain place, you exchange money for a computer with someone who is in that place, but Apple, the company, doesn't really exist itself. You can't observe Apple. Right. <clears throat> all you can do is, is recognize that, well, we all recognize that Apple is a company that has thousands and thousands of employees, but all of these concepts are really in in our imagination in a sense, right? We all understand them in a sense, but but we can't really uh, take pictures of them and we can't observe them. Mm -hmm. So we need a theory of what the heck is going on to begin with. And based on the theory, we can collect data, but obviously we can't use that data to try to figure out if the theory is correct or not because that this circular argument, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a theory to identify what the data are, then you can't use that data to then figure out if the theory is correct because mm -hmm. the, the data depend on the theory already. Yeah, so no, it, it's a complicated area to talk about. Um, the way I like, one of the ways I've thought about this is 
theory is actually shaping how we see, not necessarily what we see. Uh, and the example I really like here is, you know, before Copernicus, we see the sun rising and falling every day. And we think it's the sun, right? The sun's going around the earth, going around the earth. But then through Copernicus's uh, revelation, right? Through mathematics, basically that no, indeed the sun's in the center. We're the ones going around and around that none of the data changed. We saw the same thing, but we interpreted it totally different differently because the theory changed. And so there's this, it's, it's fascinating. Like we almost inhabit these theoretical structures. Even when you describe the company, they are kind of born in the imagination and we're, we live action role play them into existence in a way. It's almost like an, an enacted theory of some kind. It's, it's fascinating to think about. Um, and one of the points Hoppe made, made in his book too, is that it's, these economic axioms are coming not from observation, actually. They're coming from self-reflection, which is subtly different. I mean, I guess it's still sort of is rooted in observation, but you're like the, I love the, the action axiom, right? That man must act, which is to say, and correct me where I'm wrong here, but man must pursue ends with means, something like that, or choose means appropriate to satisfy ends. And to argue against that is an action itself, right? You're choosing the means of counter-argument against the axiom of action. So it sort of, it makes it indisputable in a way. And it's those little indisputable uh, propositions, I guess that you built, you deduce all this uh, economic science from. So it's, it's, it's a, I feel like we're a world that's just bathed in empiricism. We think that's all there is. And there's this whole other domain that is scarcely understood or talked about. Yeah, no, exactly. And and in a sense, economics and all social sciences, they, they should work more like geometry or something like that, right? Yeah. No one ever said that, oh, well, are you sure that a triangle has angles that, that add up to 180 degrees? Have you actually measured any, any triangles? Right. No, because no, no one is that stupid thinking that, oh, well, let's go out and see, find some triangles and ch check if they're actually 180 degrees. Because yeah. we already know this, right? And we can go out in the world and we can say, oh, that is a triangle because we know what it is, right? So so theory comes before the observation. So it helps us, just like you said, it helps us understand what the heck is going on and it helps us understand the world because we already have this lens that reveals how the economy works to us. And and all social sciences uh, really should have, have this approach simply because people are people and, and not just dead things, right? In, in physics or chemistry or whatever you can have experiments and, and things are repeated over and over again and you you can if, after you repeat them thousands of times you, you can sort of say well some with some certainty that well it seems to be the same results every time but you can't do that with people because the situation is different they understand the situation differently they have different values they learn they're influenced by each other and all of these things right i mean a simple example would be in physics, you can you can line up a bunch of rocks and you can push them over the edge and you can you can measure how far they fall and how quickly they fall and gravity and all this stuff, right? But then you can line up people there instead. Well, you can push the first guy down, but the second guy is probably going to punch you on the nose and defend himself. Right. So 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 that 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 behavior is not repeatable in in that sort of experiment, right? And even if you would take the same guy and you you go down and you you pick him up and put him on the same edge again and you try to push him 
Hmm. He would probably defend himself too or push you down or something like that, right? Hmm. So it's it, it it changes because they have changed. They have learned and they have realized that what what you're doing what they've realized what you're doing and what the results are and they want to avoid those results because they don't value them and therefore the outcome is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's excellently said. There's just it's impossible to isolate the variables in social sciences. And then to your point as well, there's always adaptivity or psychology or game theory in play because the organism, it's an adaptive strategy, right? As you try to apply an experiment or an observation, well, the organism is going to adapt in in unpredictable ways. Um, So yeah, this approach to economics is realizing that, right? That, that combinatorial explosion of you can't possibly know what's going to happen Versus when, you know, we know water will freeze at zero degrees centigrade pretty much under normal conditions, but there's no such constant in this other domain of, of human action. Um, I'll read another excerpt here. You wrote a little further down that the aim of economics is to understand how an economy in all its shapes and forms works, the nature and workings of the overall process of people making their own decisions, acting and interacting as they see fit. The economy lacks both plan and planner. It doesn't have a goal. It just is. And a little further down, you wrote, production is core to the economy. It is about providing as many means as possible to satisfy as many highly valued wants as possible. I think that is just such an important framing that it is about want satisfaction. Ultimately, you know, that that's the reason we're doing all of this. Um, and it really gets down to the the essential nature of what an economy is. You're talking about act, acting and interacting and satisfying human wants. And it, um, I guess, helps us more properly frame the other areas of economics that we typically focus on, like jobs and goods and services and, and whatnot. Um, what is it about production? Why do you say production is core to the economy? Um, how do you unpack that for people? Cause that can be kind of a strange, strange word sometimes. Yeah. It's, it seems a little abstract and it's, it seems like it's just a part of the economy. Maybe that the economy is so much more, maybe something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But starting with action, which is really, I mean, you, you, you put it in a different way, but, but action is really a, trying to attain something that is of greater value to us. It's a, it's a, what we do in order to satisfy some want that we have. So we weren't satisfied when we started or we wouldn't act, right? So we act in order to to change something. And that process itself, using means to attain ends, and the ends are valuable, the means are valuable because we can use them or so we think to attain those ends. And that whole process is production, right? It's, it's creating this outcome where we believe that we will be better off. That is production. And the problem here, of course, is that all those ends that we want to attain, there's really no limit to them. We, we can value all kinds of things and we're never really satisfied. So in, in a sense, we're super greedy as people, right? We can always be a little better off. We can always have a little more comfortable life, a little tastier beef, a little, all, all of this stuff, right? You can always have better and never can have a longer, healthier life and all of this stuff. We can always, uh, always find, find ways that we're not perfectly satisfied. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the means are limited. So the time... The, the space we're in, the stuff we're using, 
I mean, the the fields that we're using for for growing stuff, or the the number of hotel rooms that we can occupy or that we can that the hotel has to offer, everything that we rely on in in our lives is basically scarce. So we don't have enough to satisfy all of our wants, and no one really does. So the problem is always production. How can we create more means so that we can satisfy more wants? Mm. And how can we figure out how to use these means in the best way possible so we get as much value as possible out of things? Right? And all of industrialization and, and what we've experienced this past few hundred years and this this enormous increase in the standard of living, at least in the West so far, it's all about production, but right? it's about figuring out better ways of producing. It's about figuring out how how to create goods that we didn't, didn't even imagine before. But some entrepreneur figured out that, oh, well, maybe this would be good in people's lives. And then, then production increases the outputs and uh, makes more people's lives better off. I mean, an, an obvious example here would be the sort of Malthusian trap, right? When Malthus, um, he, he sort of concluded that there couldn't be more than a billion people in the world because then we would starve to death because we don't have enough fields and we can't produce enough food. Today, of course, we're 8 billion people. So that sort of proves him wrong. So, but it, it's also the problem now is not really starvation in a, a big chunk of the world. It's because we're eating too much. And how is that? How could that be? I mean, how how could it be that he he could calculate it so wrong? Well, it's simply because he did not include innovation and figuring out better ways of producing and better things to produce, right? So there's really no limit to this. The only limit is is here in our skulls, is our imagination, and our creativity as people. Yeah. So with more people, we are more creative too. But but that production overcoming the scarcity of the world is is the main issue. And that's what's sort of holding us back from being super rich, all of us. Yeah, it's well said, and that, you know, more free people, I think too, is the other important ingredient there, right? To really have innovation coming out of a, a population. They need to be free. Um, I, I wanna share, and to your earlier point, so action, I, what did Misa say? It's uh, with the aim of removing felt uneasiness something like that right uh so you're trying to go from a, a state of less ease to more ease about whatever the circumstances are and i wanted to ask you this so i had written about because supply and demand these are two more very common economic terms probably the the most common pair but also still a little bit esoteric to people in the sense that they don't understand what that really means um but i think when you strip it down to this about being the satisfaction of wants, um, would it be fair to call supply and demand something like satisfaction and desire in that supply is we're accumulating the means to satisfy the desires that people have, even the accumulation of capital over time is, you know, really intended to serve the creation of goods at some point. And then demand itself is really just humans desiring different things, right? Shelter and food and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that a, do you think that's a proper way to describe these dynamics in an economy? 
Yeah, it could be. I mean, another way of putting it is is simply that this this is the nature of valuing things. Mm-hmm. So the, the more we have of something, the less we value each unit. So if, if I'm thirsty, I'm going to have a glass of water. Well, if I have three glasses of water, it doesn't really matter if I if I happen to drop one, mm-hmm. right? But if I have only one and I'm thirsty, then dropping one would mean a whole lot more to me. Mm-hmm. So if I have a lot of these things, then the less scarce they are from the point of view of what I can use them for, right? And at some point, I don't care at all anymore. Mm-hmm. So... If I then can get something in exchange for these glasses of water, then I would probably use the first one to drink just because I'm really thirsty. But then the other ones, I mean, I don't value what I can use them for as much as what I might get if I exchange them for someone, right? So that, that's my supply, my giving up those uh, those glasses of water and offering them to someone else who might be willing to exchange to get them, right? And then the exchange that happens, of course, means that, well, I don't value that one glass of water as highly as what they offer in return. But that person necessarily values the glass of water higher than what they give up. Mm -hmm. So maybe they have a a lot of potato chips or something like that, and they're going to eat one or two or three, maybe 37 bags, but bags number 38 and 39, they don't care. Mm -hmm. So I might value those more highly than the extra glass of water that I have, so I'll just trade with them. And the result, of course, is that both are better off. Mm-hmm. But I am the supplier of those glasses of water, and I'm a demander because I'm 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 buying those potato chips, and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? So it's 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 obvious when you think about it that yeah, the, where those curves meet, you have the market price, mm-hmm. yeah, because that's where people's valuations are with respect to any good. That that's. All the exchanges there will happen because everybody's better off. And whoever is not willing to pay the price is not going to trade because they're better off not trading. Mm-hmm. So it's really just a, a matter of, of people's valuation. So it's, it is, it is core, but it's, it's, and it's, it's core to understanding the economy and what determines prices and everything like that. But it, it's really just derived from our valuations and how we, of course, act based on those. Yeah, it's it's very fortunate it works out that way, right? Because we have this subjective process of valuation that somehow gets converted into this objective pricing system. Um, if we didn't have that, we'd be very uncoordinated, uh, at least in terms of... Yeah, and it's, it's like a miracle, really, right? Yeah. I mean, just interacting and just because we value things and we value things personally like we said in the beginning so what how much i value something and how much you value something well we don't have a clue of each other's valuations mm-hmm. but if we have the option of trading and exchanging with people then we can personally say i can say well the, these glasses of water i would rather have the potato chips mm-hmm. and the other guy vice versa so we trade mm-hmm. right so so it's it's pretty obvious when you think about it. Well, we're all just trying to satisfy our wants to the best degree possible. And if we do it voluntarily, then we're going to trade with people and figure out uh, where we can get as much as possible out of what we've got. Mm-hmm. And of course, in my own valuation, I'm going to get if potato chips are, are worth more than the, the glass of water, but someone else offers a third thing, strawberries or whatever, and I want strawberries more, well, then I'm going to tr- choose to trade with that guy instead. 
right? So, so there's there's definitely an order to it, as long as there's not crime or fraud or something like that involved. But the economy itself, it 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 follows automatically in a sense of people's valuations, because that's that's the basis for our action. Every action is motivated by just value for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So is it, um, I guess because I'm implied there, well, the mutual consent of a trade, like the fact that it's consensual on both sides, this is the only way to create maximal value in the world. This is the way I often describe it. I'm not sure that it's exactly correct because I know also value is what's motivating the action or action as an expression of the value perhaps. But it seems like in consensual exchange, there's always value creation on both sides, at least psychic 
profit or psychological value. But if there's a non-consensual element to it, that it could only be less value, less total value created. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How, what's the relationship between consent, consensual exchange and value creation? Well, well I agree. I mean, in any exchange, there's value created on both sides because both parties are better off. Mm -hmm. But if it's not consensual, I mean, then, then it means that, well, I want those bags of potato chips, so I will just take them from you because I will knock you over the head or something like that, or I will, I will uh, threaten you or something like that. Well, that makes me better off because I get those goods, but the other person does not. And he doesn't get anything in exchange. And he doesn't get to choose what he gets in exchange either. So that person's valuations are simply not part of the of the equation anymore. So obviously compared to the alternative that we trade voluntarily, that's much worse. So anytime in a sense when when fraud or or coercion is involved, it's it's a redistribution, a reallocation of value. But it's not a creation of value. But any voluntary trade necessarily makes both parties better off. Or at least judging from from their own valuations before the trade. I mean, we can make mistakes, right? So it could be that I don't really like those potato chips and or whatever else. So I'm not happy after the fact, but I I I went through with the trade because I thought I would be. And and therefore the chances of getting value are are much greater than any other situation. Hmm. Yeah, it sure is a simple principle, but very misapplied in the world today. Uh, okay, I will read another excerpt here. Um, this is a bit of a long one, but it's really good. You wrote, to form an understanding of how the economy works, we must humble, we must be humble before the fact that it exists and there is an order to it. It has a nature. The task of the economist is not to predict the specifics of the future, but to uncover the underlying processes that produce the economic outcomes that we can observe. In other words, we must develop a logic for understanding aggregate economic phenomena and behavior, an economic theory. Economics is a framework for how to think and uh, how to think and reason about the economy for making sense of what is going on, an intuition, if you will. It follows that learning economics is fundamentally about gaining economic literacy so we can so we can better understand the world we are a we are part of the real world, not the invented world we find in formalized models. As Mises put it, economics deals with the real man, weak and subject to error as he is, not with the ideal beings, omniscient and perfect as only gods could be. It's really good stuff. Um, so what we're talking about is real economic science based on real fallible human beings and the best things we have are these inarguable incontestable axioms that we derive from self-reflection and we build a mathematics like domain of knowledge to understand the economic history that we observe something like that mm -hmm. it's it's a strangely provocative statement nowadays, unfortunately. <laughs> but but economics was always about sort of uncovering what is actually going on because people were were in awe. They were like, where the heck does this come from? And mm -hmm. I, I mentioned in the book the, the 19th century economist in, in France, Frederick Bastiat, 
-hmm. and how he asked the question, how does Paris get fed? I mean, it's, it's, it seems like such an, an, an obvious thing that, yeah, of course, everybody in Paris, they have a lot of food. But then when you think about it, they don't actually produce any food in in Paris in, in the sense that the city imports everything. So who decides what they want to import in the future and who starts to grow what they want later on? There's no one planning this. There's no one trying to figure out or... We're sort of having a survey of everybody living in Paris. And what are you going to eat on Tuesday, the third of November in 2025? Let's see if I can, I can, I can try to produce that for you at a price that you like. No, no one is doing that. Instead, it sort of just happens. So his his question was, how how the heck does this happen? And very often, the first step towards knowledge is asking the right question, right? And just assuming that it happens is is that's not science. It's, it doesn't help us at all. But asking that sort of question, realize, well, wait a minute. In order for us to have potatoes or whatever in this market square today, someone must have decided to use land to plant potatoes a year ago, invested a lot of labor, hoping uh, that that the weather would be nice enough so that he would have a harvest and whatever, and then transport it. On, on a carriage with some oxen or whatever they used back, back then into this square so that we could have it and buy it today at a price that we can afford. So there's a lot that goes into this. <clears throat> and yet we, we just, to us, it's, it's natural. We're just used to it. So we don't really think about it much, but thinking like an economist means that you have to recognize that, okay, what, what actually happened and why did it happen so that we actually get these things today? And many of these things are, are are fantastic. I mean, I when when I travel, I buy these little adapters for for power plugs, for all these different cult countries, and you can usually find them on Amazon for you get like two or three for a dollar. And it turns out that they ship the freaking thing from China. Now, how how can that be that you can buy this little thing, and you have plenty of people making profits every step of the way. So someone is producing the raw materials in a mine somewhere and they are making money and they're selling a little bit to this other guy who's then producing materials, sheet metal or whatever uh, that, that turns into part of this thing. And then there's a factory with workers and they have these processes. All of this just happened somehow so that I can buy this thing. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, but how can we explain it? Well, as an economist, you have to uncover these processes that are going on and that you have entrepreneurs all along the way producing all these things, intending to satisfy someone's wants. They're not, they don't intend to satisfy my wants for a power adapter uh, when I travel somewhere, but they, someone uh, imagined that there is going to be a demand for this type of thing, so they started the process of producing it, and that created demand for whatever uh, inputs were necessary into this production process, which was a signal to people producing in the previous stage and so forth, all the way back to basically virgin land and the miner, right? And these structures, they work. No, no one, no one said, I mean, or United certainly didn't say that, hey, in a couple of years, I'm going to need this adapter and I would like to buy it at a really cheap price. How about a dollar? Because I would never think that a dollar would be enough. Mm. Um, and, and now it's just there. It's just available because I need it. And, and figuring out 
how this happened and why it happened. And then why didn't something else happen? And what else could have happened? Those sort of questions. I mean, that's that's the, that's what economists have tried to figure out from the very beginning. Unfortunately, today, the economists aren't doing these things all that much. They're, they're not looking at what is going on and trying to figure out, okay, how did this come about? Instead, they, they try to predict uh, and they use uh, loads of data uh, that they push through their models and they try to predict exactly the outcome if you have this regulation or if you have that regulation. So basically uh, policy recommendations or recommendations to policymakers, uh, which is a very different type of science and uh, in a sense an impossible one too because you, you can't really predict society to that extent that 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 we can call it the science. I mean, you, you, can, you can do that in the natural sciences, but in the social sciences, it's not possible. Yeah, no, completely true. And it really is scary because I've heard big four consulting firms like Deloitte, they've been recently publishing these 100 year economic forecasts and like where they see the population going and industry and energy and all. And they're trying to use that to inform policy decisions in the present day. And that is, I mean, pure arrogance and hubris uh, at, at a very colossal scale. Um, and if anything, it seems like we're ultimately kind of studying these complex systems that we can't, you don't know what's going to happen basically. So it seems like in the face of that unknowability, Austrian economics or praxeology more generally is just humble. It's like, here's what we can know and let's deduce from there. Whereas, you know, the other school of thought is you can somehow probe the past and then make a 100 year projection of the future and then build present policy around that. It just doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, yeah. And it follows from that. Of course, if, if you think that you can predict exactly, then, then you know in detail what's going to happen, or at least you can sort of guesstimate. Right. And if you think that you can do that, then you automatically probably think that you can tweak it too. Mm -hmm. So you can make certain outcomes happen. And I mean that's that's the very opposite of hubris of of, of a humility, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not about understanding what is going on. It's not recognizing that people are people and they're actual agents with their own values and and views and goals and and what have you. But instead, it's 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 sort of a, a system of just bodies uh, moving around and and trying to attain certain already known ends. And, and none of this is really true. It's it's not a machine. The economy is not a machine. It's it's a, a it's in a sense that they, they call it an organism back in the 19th century. A, a lot of economists, mm -hmm. and I think that is a that is pretty good because it's, it it does live and it just does grow or or shrink in size and have different outcomes depending on all these different things. Right? It's it's responding to a lot of different things, but it, it has, sort of has a life of its own, and and. I think that the core task of an economist is really to try to figure out what is its nature, how does it actually work, and and our understanding of it. What what can we do with that? How can we figure out how to in, in the in the longer term and on the on a sort of grander scale, how can we lift more people out of poverty? How can we make the world a better place for everyone? That's 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 just really the the core task not not trying to shape certain things or or produce an exact outcome because that's just impossible yeah absolutely um well, i think 
uh, the author to love said he described it as confusing the cat for the washing machine <laughs> that you think you can go in and just change a little pipe or something on the washing machine and repair it. You know, it's deterministic. Basically you can figure it out, but you can't do that to the cat because the cat is, is not a machine. It's a complex system. And it's so painfully obvious to me that the economy should be revered as the most complex system when we look at the individual human mind and we're, we, we think the human brain is the most complex thing in the universe. Yet when we describe the interlinking of all the human brains in the world via the pricing system, we somehow reduce that mm -hmm. or the Keynesians reduce this to the washing machine and think they can just pull a lever and press a button. Um, could not be, I mean, there's nothing further from the truth, I guess, in my opinion. Um, the description as an organism it's a very interesting one, uh, philosophically deep, and I've thought about it a bit myself. It kind of leads you to this other line of questioning is what is the, what is the line between living and non-living, which is another really tricky question to answer. But if we're taking that analogy um, for what it's worth, I guess, or on its face, would you then say that money is like the blood of the economic or socioeconomic organism? Whoa. Um, yeah, that's a, I'm not sure I ever thought of that really, but in, I mean, in a sense, I mean, money is super important, right? So in a, a money economy, which is a highly productive economy compared to the alternative barter, one side of every transaction is practically money, right? So, I mean, we, when we talked about before about exchanges, well, I, I talked about my glass of water for, for potato chips, but that's usually not what how people trade. It's not usually how we do things in the economy because we trade for money. We work, so we, we sell our labor, we sell our labor services in a sense to an employer or we have our own business, we get paid in money. And then we use that money to buy whatever it is we want. So we work as a means and, and usually it's, it's not a means that we like very much. We talk about the disutility of labor. But we get paid for it, so we're we're fine with it, and therefore we can attain ends because we go to different stores and we buy things and we pay our bills and and whatnot else. Um, so money is definitely core to to the, to the organism, and it, it helps with the allocation of resources and the uses of resources and all kinds of investments and entrepreneurship and everything too. That it simply wouldn't be possible without the money. So is it? Is it the, the blood or is it the nervous system? Well, I, I'm not sure what, what is the better analogy, but it's definitely very core. If it works, I should say. I mean, if it's if it's good money. It, right. If you right. screw it up, then you screw up the whole economy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I would assume you mean free market determined money is typically good money. Yeah, yeah. That's that's typically good, good money, and I would say some some money that is i mean it's something that is backed right there's some something that is, is either backed by another value or something that people trust in itself and that you can't just create more at a whim yeah. especially not one party because if you create more money i mean prices are expressed in terms of money but they're really just relative prices right between different goods yeah. um but but if you constantly undermine the purchasing power of money by creating more, so you have more money uh, competing for the same number of goods, which of course means you have price inflation, mm -hmm. um, then then it's not a good money. It's not reliable because it doesn't really 
uh, maintain its value. Uh, you can't really save it like people could before with, say, gold coins or whatever, or you, which you could put in, in your mattress and it retain its value. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't lose everything just just because you used it, had it in your mattress and you didn't use it. Uh, it was a form of savings. Um, and, and as long as <clears throat> as long as people in general can trust the money and the money actually is is valuable to everybody else and then it, it works well uh of course this is excludes pretty much everything that we call money today all those uh state currencies are unreliable to say the least that they're they're a reliable means of indirect taxation for the governments but it, mm -hmm. there's really nothing else yeah well well said on that um so i'll jump a little bit ahead here i just on a whim, I'm jumping into chapter six, which is on value, money, and price, just so we could maybe riff on that a little bit. But I do want to try to go back to some stuff earlier. Um, but I thought this was good, just again on that topic of converting our ordinal preferences, which is I can only prefer one thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, versus this domain of cardinal numbers where you said like, you know, 1.25, I value pairs 1.25x more than oranges. Like that doesn't make sense. But somehow the pricing system gets us from the domain of value to the domain of units, I guess. And you wrote that um, value is the removal of or fulfillment of some uneasiness, like hunger or loneliness, which makes us better off. We can compare satisfactions, for example, that we like oranges more than apples and we like pears more than either. Simple value comparisons in terms of our own personal satisfactions are unproblematic. If we are both hungry and thirsty, we can quickly decide which uneasinesses to remove first by considering how urgently we feel each one. But although we can make comparisons and determine which satisfaction would be greater, there are no units of value. And so, and this is such a key, what is it? How is that transformation possible this is just getting everyone's preferences focused on one through one medium and then this the just the buying and selling right converts it all into a number yeah i mean it's, it's amazing when you think about it that that we can get everything into just a number in this specific type of unit which originally was a good in itself right that everybody yeah. just started using indirectly um but it, it's it really is that that my rankings of different wants they 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 sort of crash with your rankings and then we figure out how to exchange goods and services with each other and then you will give up what you value less for what you value more and i will do the same and then we will exhaust our the the possibilities for gains from trade right mm -hmm. and then same with someone else and that means that well between the two of us we're going to find an exchange ratio that, that we are both happy with. Mm -hmm. So if it's water for potato chips or if it's if it's car for cars for dollars or whatever it might be, uh, we would either make those exchanges and be happy with it or we would not, which means that one of us is or both perhaps are asking too much. Mm -hmm. And every time an exchange happens with this uh, money unit, as one side, as long as those happen, a, a price gets recorded, right? So a price sort of happens between the two of us 
But then being in the marketplace, I might want to buy your potato chips. Um, <clears throat> and But then I, I realized that others have potato chips too. So I only have a few dollars. Mm -hmm. So will I buy it from you? Well, you say that, well, I, I will sell it for this this amount, whatever it is. So 10 bucks a bag or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, well, I, I've heard others were selling theirs and they only charge five bucks a bag. So I would rather wait a little bit and I would go to them and buy from them instead. Right. So, mm -hmm. so people would of course get the better deal before the, the worst deal. And, mm -hmm. and some deals are simply too bad. So, so they would not go ahead with that at all. And, and because of these interactions and people acting just to satisfy their own uh, wants to the degree possible, we have market prices, right? So some people will be selling for way too low a price and they will sell out quickly. And then whoever charges a little higher price, but not too high will sell theirs. And eventually you will, you'll get to a point where no more trades will be made because people aren't happy to buy at that price. And therefore you have a, a, a market price, right? So it's, it's really everybody's valuations of the goods involved in competition. Of course, this when we go to the store, we never really realize that there is an ongoing bidding process. So when you go to Walmart, it's not like you can start to haggle with Walmart and say, oh, I'm not going to pay that. I'm going to pay just a little less because they've already tried to figure out uh, how can they sell enough at a, a sufficiently high price of this one good. So they already have a price. And then of course, if they don't sell, they will eventually have a sale or they will lower the price. Mm -hmm. But right now you can't even argue with them because they, they sort of, they have excluded that part of, of, of the process because they, they treat all customers the same and, and that all customers either buy at the price they have on the sticker or not. Mm -hmm. But it, it's still the case that if they sell out immediately, well, then they're going to try to buy more but they might have to pay more to get more. And they will realize, well, if, actually, if we sold this quickly, we could charge a little higher price and we would still sell out. So the price would go up just because people consider the goods more valuable. And if they charge too much, they're going to have shelves full of this stuff uh, that no one is buying. And then they will have a sale and they will lower the price or in Walmart's case, they would probably return it to the to their supplier. But but it still is a strong signal that no, this is this price is too high, or the even the cost is too high. So stop producing it, right? Just because everybody is buying what what they think is is the the best way to satisfy their wants, using money and and the purchasing power of money. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I'm really amazed when i think about the data compression that's occurring in that one price i'm not sure it might be a stretch to say this but it seems like almost the entirety of production and consumption decisions related to a commodity across most of history should be contained in that price right it's like how much gold is above ground how much demand is there for it right now how much how much exists how much has been destroyed and so you get this very clear signal, very objective metric that's coming from this, you know, enormous space of subjective valuation uh, and action as well, right? Those, these are the consequences of action, I suppose. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting. I wanted to 
you talked a little bit about the origins of money as well. So I'll, I'll read an excerpt about that. You've got a very interesting description here. Um, you write that money is the commonly used medium of exchange and it has value to us because it provides this function. We value money like other goods because of what it can do for us. But it is not the bills and coins themselves that provide us with value, but the expectation that we can use them to buy what we want. This means money works because we recognize it as such and therefore accept it in exchange. Money has purchasing power. It is the belief that money can buy goods that makes it valuable. If we believed that we would not be able to use money to buy goods, perhaps we believe others will not accept it, then we too would not accept it. This means money is money because people consider it to be money. In this sense, money is largely a self-reinforcing social institution. We all have experience using it and we thus and thus have some idea of what it means for something to be money. But this does not explain what money is or why it is or how it came to be. So this uh, interesting description I was referring to is uh, money is largely a self-reinforcing social institution. Are you alluding to kind of like the game theoretic selection process that is money? I mean, that's at least the way I've come to view it is like many other things in the economic domain, we try different tools to see which tool is the best thing for the job. And when it comes to money, you know, it's valued on its liquidity and its network effects. We kind of drilled down to or zeroed in on gold over time as, as one of the best monies. But is that what you're referring to in that, um, that line self-reinforcing social institution? Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's when, when we already have money, it will continue to be money for as long as people consider it to be money, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's a it's really a huge problem in theoretically that how come that people in general ex accept something for buying and selling that they don't want and that they might have zero use for, and whether that is gold or if it's dollars or whatever it might be, I mean they accept it only because they believe that well. This is what we trade for, and I can always use dollars to buy other stuff, right? So there's a trust involved in, in, in an expectation that because others will use dollars, I can accept dollars indirectly then, because so I can work for someone and get these pieces of paper that I can't really do anything with uh, themselves, right? But I can still accept to work for these pieces of paper because I believe that I can use this piece of paper to buy other stuff that I actually want, right? So it, it sort of separates my supply to the market from my demand from the market. Mm -hmm. But in order to get there, I mean, how do you get from just trading things for things um, in barter trade to everybody trading their things and basically selling everything they produce for this one thing that they don't want and then buying other things with it? And that's something that it, economists had sort of a problem with figuring out until Carl Menger had wrote an essay on it back in the 1890s, where he said, well, barter has very strict limitations. So yes, I could trade my glass of water for the potato chips, but I couldn't trade for a lot of other things because I need to find someone who wants what I have and offers what I want and we need to agree on a on an exchange ratio as well. 
So there's so many trades that I would want to make, but I can't because they don't want what I have. But then I would figure out that, well, this guy who wants, has something that I really, really value highly, he doesn't want what I have. But my neighbor produces something that I think that he would want more. So I'll just trade my stuff for whatever the neighbor has to offer that I don't want or I don't need, or maybe I'm allergic to this stuff or whatever. But I think that it's indirectly it will help to facilitate the trade to get what I actually want. Mm -hmm. Now, when people start doing this, they will, of course, learn from each other and they will start to trade and sell their stuff for what they think is the more saleable good. And there are, of course, many different goods to choose from. So they will step-by-step uh, step figure out that, well, wait a minute, the, those guys over there, they traded for eggs and people over here, they traded for butter and people over there, they traded for these seashells. And then you will sort of join them and say, well, I'll trade my stuff for seashells too. That means I can trade with these guys because they already did that. So I, I sort of use that information. And then eventually it means that we will have just a few goods that everybody's selling their stuff for because they recognize that, well, this is what people are using. So that facilitates a lot of trades for me. And eventually you would probably have one or two like gold and silver uh, that most people recognize. And, and then it has become this institution that people just go, well, that's money. And, and money is the, the commonly used medium of exchange, right? It's, it's that one good that everybody values, not for being the good itself, but because you can use it for its purchasing power. So you can use it to get what you actually want. And the way I see it is that money, now that we have this in, invention, we all take it for granted. And money is all over the place. The problem is that that if you start tampering with the money, so people don't really trust it anymore, they will shy away from using it. And they might use something else, of course, because the invention is still there. The knowledge of what the money is is still there. But there, there's some inertia, of course. But eventually, if the dollar would lose too much of its purchasing power every year, people will go for, go for something else. They would choose maybe a different state currency like the euro, or they would choose Bitcoin, or they would invest in gold coins or something like that, that would retain its value, right? So they would not use dollars, which means the dollars would be accepted by fewer and fewer people. So its purchasing power would fall and fall and fall. And we see that uh, during hyperinflation times, for instance, mm -hmm. like when people just try to get rid of the money as fast as they can, because the money doesn't doesn't retain any value mm. and no one wants to accept them either because, but they just want goods instead. Buy whatever the heck you can because that thing will at least have some value in the future. So, so they're turning their backs on, on that money. But as long as we use a money and as long as we recognize that, well, this is money, it's sort of uh, reinforcing itself because we're, that means that we're demanding it. And we're changing, we're exchanging our goods for that thing. So as long as we use do dollars, the dollar will be a money. But when people sort of collectively, all of the country, or at least a, a big chunk of it, uh, will stop using dollars, then the dollars will, will be completely worthless. They, mm -hmm. they, they, don't, they don't function as money anymore. And then we will use something else. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm kind of back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about these imaginary structures that humans create. And it seems like money is 
sort of one that just emerges naturally, right? Anywhere that we're we're trading, whatever gets promoted to the most saleable or exchangeable or liquid asset just kind of emerges as money. Um, it's fascinating. And you have another great excerpt here about this that I'll read. You wrote that a decree does not create money. It creates only an obligation, which is limited by the extent of its enforcement. However, it is fully conceivable that a government can, bit by bit, take over and monopolize an already existing money, which we have seen happen. <clears throat> Most currencies today are government monopoly monies, but that is not how money was invented or accepted as a medium of exchange. It is only how it ended up. The economic function of money cannot simply be created from the top down. So there's this strange element. Again, we needed consent for money to emerge, like the natural market process. You can't decree that into existence. But once it does exist, a government can come in by decree and, to your point, bit by bit, right? You can't just declare gold belongs to the U.S. government or something like that, but you can peg the dollar to gold and over time run a fractional reserve and then, you know, suspend gold redeemability and do all these things. So it's, um, it's very fascinating. Again, this whole, and then, you know, it separates too, because once this is where the definition of money is strange, because we say it's a widely accepted medium of exchange, but I guess there, there's a lot of argument to be made that something like gold is still money in a geopolitical sense but it's not widely accepted as a medium of exchange. So I've always considered that layer one, whether it's gold or something like Bitcoin to be more money-like. And then the application we put on it, currency is what actually functions as a universal medium of exchange. So how do you think think about that? Is there some ambiguity perhaps in that term money? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, it's not exact. I mean, it's, if it is commonly used, that means that other things are used too. Yeah. And and what does it mean to be commonly used? How widely does it have to be used in order to be a money? Right. And do are we talking about globally? Are we talking about within a country? Are we talking about within a state or in in my county? Or what what is what is money? Right? Because you would do to find different counties or different neighborhoods where they use other things as money because they just agree on it. So I, I think it it sort of is from a a market perspective. That, that certain things are commonly used for exchanges within a group of people or a group of actors. And it doesn't have to be sort of in a, in a territorial sense. They don't have to live together or be adjacent to each other. They could be all over the world, but they have a sort of a network where they rely on this one thing. Uh, so it could be one of those uh, currencies or credits within a computer game that people who use that computer game, they use that that thing as money at least in that setting, right? Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, in, in geopolitical sense, gold is money. Well, gold is also money between central banks. Mm -hmm. Central banks, they tend to buy and sell a whole lot of gold. At the same time, of course, they tell us that, no, 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 gold is not money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to them, it is, obviously, right? So <laughs> there's something weird going on here. So it, it can be, and, and at the same time, not, it, uh, simply because it's in different situations and for different people. But it... It, it it I think it, money used to be so much easier to understand when, I mean, we were basically on a global uh, gold standard for a while. Mm -hmm. And well, I mean, it's, it's the weight in gold. If you call them Franks or Deutschmarks or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It was still a weight. Yeah. 
yeah. of that precious metal. And that was it. So you had a fixed exchange rate between currencies because they were just different rates or different weights of, of gold, nothing else. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's a very stable currency that it will always be the same. Yes, there is more gold being found and, and mined and things like that, but it's a very slow process um, and it costs a lot to dig it out of the earth and and things like that. So it's, it's not like they can just inflate it completely uh, overnight. It's going to take a while and then they have to invest a lot of resources into producing it too. So it's sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's self-balancing in a sense, right? There's, there are no shocks really, even though there, there have been shocks in gold too, right? right. So when the, when the Spaniard imported a lot of gold from South America, when they colonized South America, they experienced hyperinflation too, mm -hmm. or at least high degrees of inflation in gold because mm -hmm. they came with big ships full of gold and everybody was, whoa, we're rich. And they started buying stuff. And then, of course, prices soared mm -hmm. because there was so much money bidding for the same number of goods. Yeah. Yeah, it's great points there. Um, and then a little further down, I want to read this excerpt to you because I think it's very important. That It's not just that money emerges naturally, but it's also like a key or perhaps the key to really unlocking economic abundance and productivity. And so you wrote that money is therefore much more than a convenience. It is necessary for exchanges to take place and for the advanced specialized production processes we take for granted in the modern economy. Large scale production, supply chains and specialization are made possible because money uncouples our efforts as both buyers and sellers. Due to the uncoupling, we can also specialize in what we do well rather than produce only what we ourselves want to consume. Consequently, we can focus our production efforts on where we make the biggest difference, where we create the most value for society. Without money, we would not be nearly as productive. So in this organism or complex system or just this you know, vast network of interrelationships, basically, money accelerates the whole thing, right? It like juices the whole process and really gives us economic calculation so we can trade and negotiate faster. We can think more clearly about economic matters. We can engage in business planning, long-term production, trade. And it's all possible because we have this common language of economic numeracy called money right it's um and yeah. i guess it's not just the psychological effects i guess i highlighted those but there's also just the ability to hold cash balances right as a buffer against uncertainty that's a huge uh necessity when you're an entrepreneur let's say facing the the uncertain all the time um anyways i'd love to hear your feedback on on that passage i thought it was brilliant yeah no i i, I agree i mean you, you can't really you can't really imagine what an economy would be like without money. I mean, it, it yes, it facilitates all these different trades, but anyone starting a new business, I mean, if you're starting production of a, of a good, what 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 is it that you have to think about? Well, okay, first the the good is it will it be invaluable enough for someone to buy this as a, at a price that makes it profitable for me? Mm -hmm. Well, then that means that you have to imagine how valuable would this be on people's personal terms, but how much money would they be willing to part with to get this sort of thing? 
compared to everything else that they have to choose from, right? How can I get place my whatever it is I'm producing so high on their ranking that they will part with money? And then my job is to figure out how can I produce this at a cost that is lower so I get something in between, or at least I don't suffer a loss, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that means I have to, all these choices to make. Do I produce, do I buy a big machine and produce a, a ton of these things, or do I? Have, do I rely on manual labor? Um, do I have one factory with lots of trucks or do I have many factories distributed that are closer to the customers? I mean, all of these different choices that you have to make, how can you make those unless you have money prices for all those things, right? If you already have a market wage for drivers and you already have prices for the trucks and you already have prices for the land and the factories, then you can make comparisons and you can figure out, okay, which one would be the better choice here? Which one would would lower the cost and and increase volume or whatever you whatever you're aiming for? But without prices, without money, then you would say, okay, so either I have one big factory with takes lots of concrete and lots of workers, or I have several smaller factories which takes concrete and labor. You have to compare in kind, and we can't really do that. Mm. It doesn't tell us anything at all. So it, it's just like you said. It, it, any any production really that is that is not for ourselves or people that we know basically personally anything that is that is um anonymous and and large scale is completely impossible we can't even we can't figure out how to put it together how to structure that type of production we can't figure out whether it's it's a good thing or a bad thing and there's no way of guessing either because we don't have anything to compare different options we don't have a unit. Mm -hmm. So money sort of releases this completely, just like in the section you read, because suddenly we don't have to produce for ourselves and we don't have to produce what we what we think that we would want if, in case we can't sell it. A lot of us produce things that we don't want at all. I mean, I, I produce a lot of uh, peer-reviewed papers. Well, I don't produce them for my own consumption. I produce them for others. And the same thing with my lectures uh, on campus. I hardly ever consume my own lectures. Mm. Right? They're not for me. Uh, and so if I couldn't sell them, then well, they would be worthless to me. But I think there's a market so I can sell them for, for money or at least I get paid to do this stuff. right? So I can focus on doing something that I'm really good at rather than something that would produce something that I would want. So I can be of, gre of greater service to mankind by focusing on where I I produce the best, right? Where I can produce as much uh, valued outcome as possible, whether or not I, I like it, because I can get paid in money and then I can use that money to buy what someone else has produced and that they're really good at producing, but they might not want it themselves, mm -hmm. right? So we can get the best and the, and the, the most productive out of each and every one of us mm -hmm. and then, then and we can organize all these long, advanced, really complex production structures and make choices between different inputs and between outputs and, and production technologies and things like that because we can compare the cost in money. Were it not for money, we couldn't do any of this. Wow. It's, a, it's wild to think about it that way. Um yeah, I mean, almost like if it is an organism, the economy is pretty unintelligent without money, to say the least. I mean, I, almost that yeah. 
information is just not flowing without money. Um, yeah, really, really good points there. I wanted to kind of rewind now. I'm back in chapter earlier in the book. I'm on page 23 and still talking about unpacking human action a little bit. I'll read an, an excerpt here. You wrote that we know that actions are directed toward attaining something, some outcome that the actor considers beneficial. In other words, actions are intended to achieve something the actor personally values. Because actors are trying to achieve something, it follows that they have not already attained it and take actions in order to become better off than they already are. Consequently, we conclude that there are things actors want that they do not have, but think that they can attain by taking an action that they believe would make them better off. In other words, actions are fundamentally causal. We act because we believe that we can bring about a specific change. And then you wrote a little further down that all of these suggest scarcity, that there are insufficient means to satisfy all the wants held, and that the actor makes choices. That the actor must choose implies that he or she must make trade-offs. In other words, the actor economizes. So um, again, this is you're kind of unpacking, I think, here the axiom of action that man must act or humans must act. And uh, it's fascinating how e economics itself is rooted in that very simple little kernel of a phrase, right? You, um, again, this is one of those like kind of mind-blowing things, like just one simple inarguable axiom. But as you unfold it, you get, I don't know, the quantity theory of money, the marginal theory of intersubjective value, like all of these theorems just pour out of it. Uh, one of which is the the fact that actors economize, right? So that's the study of economics. Um, anyways, just very kind of profound. Uh, I'm wondering how, this is not kind of casual sidewalk conversation. I'm wondering if you have any special tricks to introduce this uh, this whole new way of thinking about economics to people. Well, I mean, that's that's a very good question. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. Um, and I mean, as a, as a university professor, I think in terms of writing, <laughs> it's either an article or a book. And I, I've debated with so many people uh, trying to convey this this way of thinking. And in a sense, it's you have to bombard people with the logic over and over again until finally they just sort of just get it. They just, mm -hmm. oh, crap, wow. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but before then, I mean, all you can do is provide them with the tools, and if they're interested, they're interested. And if they if they choose to um, to learn and choose choose to see the world this way, then then that's great. If if they don't, then I'll be turned to someone else. Uh, but I I think it's it's such a powerful way of thinking um, that it it really does uncover how things actually work. And I think it very often we're sort of stuck in 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 what we can see. So we approach the economy in the wrong way. So we ob observe things and we say, oh, this must be because, right? So we, we observe the outcome and then we, we, we jump to conclusions, but we don't really understand how this outcome came to be, mm -hmm. right? So, so one example would be that, oh, this big business, they have so much power because they have 
they're the only one or or the one of two and they have a thousands of employees and they have lots of revenue and they sell sell for a lot of money so they have a lot of power well i mean it would look like it so amazon or microsoft or apple or whatever they they're very powerful businesses and they are in terms of politics but economically are they no they're not because the economy is a a constant process so if you go back apple wasn't very powerful before apple was very on the brink of, of bankruptcy and they were saved because Bill Gates stepped in and and and, hmm. and bought a part of it and, and gave them money, right? <clears throat> so and and they will be replaced by another business. Why? Because people value certain things and they, they those things change too. But someone will come up with a new way of of providing them with value, and then whatever the big businesses do today is going to be worthless. So it's it's much like the taxi cab companies ten years ago. They were very powerful and and had lots of influence in terms of just personal transportation. I mean, you call the cab, they showed up or not, but it was their choice, right? So they had that power. Uh, what if they didn't show up? Well, then you were screwed, right? So you, then you were going to miss your flight or miss the party or wherever you were going, or you're stuck in whatever end of town you happen to be. Well, they, you, you can't do anything. Mm. Then Uber comes along. They don't even own any taxi cabs at all. No, no cars whatsoever. Right? It's, it's just an app. It's a matchmaking app that connects you with someone who wants to drive for money. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, well, now a lot of taxi cab companies they're simply gone, even though they were protected by the government and they had the whole market and all this stuff, and they're gone because there's a new service that happened. Mm-hmm. And we see this over and over again that these big businesses that we think of as really powerful, that quickly does just disappear. Mm-hmm. So Sears, where the heck is Sears now? Mm-hmm. But no one could compete with Sears, right? Mm-hmm. And the same thing with with a uh, uh, Henry Ford when he when he he released the the Model T, mm-hmm. the first affordable car, suddenly a lot of of uh, cart makers and buggy whip producers went out of business because people chose a better means of transportation. Mm-hmm. So people choose differently when entrepreneurs figure out an, a new type of good or service and offer it to them. And pe- people as consumers, they're not loyal whatsoever, right. which means a big business cannot have power. They have power only for as long as there are no alternatives and no one wants to produce an alternative, right? Mm-hmm. And they're powerful now because they won the weeding out process earlier, but they will not be powerful tomorrow because they might not win the weeding out process when other entrepreneurs try new things. So if you you have to if you see things through an economist's eyes and you look at the market as an ongoing process, then it's ever changing. It's evolutionary. Mm-hmm. So so it, I, I think recognizing that much of what we see today and the conclusions we sort of draw or even jump to because it seems reasonable with what we just see on television or what we see around us. It's usually the wrong uh, idea. Mm-hmm. We misunderstand a lot because we don't look at it uh, from a, a sound economics point of view. Mm-hmm. If we understand economic reasoning, we can understand, oh, it's this way because, and it's a it's a problem or it's not because. But very often, uh, economics uncovers that 
it's ex it's it's not what we think mm -hmm. and it's very often the very opposite of what we thought mm -hmm. and and that's why i think a lot of people they they really dislike economics too because it sort of it it makes their dreams impossible so <laughs> and that's <laughs> that sort of awakening is 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 not fun for anyone right they want want to create a different type of world but the economy is the economy that works in a certain way you can't just change it because it's it's a emergence from people's actions and interactions hmm. yeah there's there's a definition of economics maybe this is from hazlitt that i've always really liked is the study of hidden consequences um and that you know i guess we could say perhaps the division of labor is one of those hidden consequences right of just humans self-organizing when they're left alone and left free and everyone minds their own business we get this amazing tool of abundance called the division of labor um but we and we've i guess made a lot of strides towards that you know thanks to all of the intellectual legacy but it now seems like we might be undermining it quite a bit with you know modern monetary theory and all the crazy statist um ideologies i guess that are um aggressive against private property mainly it kind of it kind of makes me think that maybe we're like those people before copernicus right we're seeing economic abundance in the world and we think oh it's this law or this legislation or this whatever political action that brought about this nice thing but it's really that that thing comes into being despite all the intervention and the laws and you know, it's the market process that that's giving rise to it. Um, but this, this, all of this, you know, that you're talking about, and again, after reading Hoppe's several of his pieces, but most recently that economic science and the Austrian method, this seems like some secret sauce. Like if we could just get this other epistemic system, this other system of knowledge into people's minds and you'd see how unshakable these axioms are. Well, oh my goodness, you would th you would see through all the political bullshit. You would see through statism and taxation and all of these things. You just see right through the illusions. Um, so I feel really passionate about trying to share that with people. And I think you've done an excellent job in your book. So thank you again. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was exactly the the point of the book. I mean, write something that is easy to read, easy to digest, easy to understand. There's sort of a shortcut to economic literacy or economic understanding, mm -hmm. but there's super short. So you can read it in an afternoon if you want to, right? It's, it's not long. Uh, it's easy and it's cheap too. I mean, the, the PDF is, is free online, so you can just download it. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to cost you anything. And I mean, buying the book is five bucks. So it's the, the, the point is to, to get this into as many hands as possible to just try to, in a sense, save the world, right? Mm -hmm. Because if, if people just think about these things the right way, and I think they can, uh, by reading this book, you, you would, they, would, they would come a long way, I think, towards understanding the economy and, and, and how it works. Yeah. And, and, and then the world would be better just because of that. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Well said. Um, could you please... Well, first of all, thank you. This has been a great conversation. And thank you again for writing the book. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, could you please let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Sure. So 
Well, I have a website like any academic, which is about as, as fun and inspiring as an academic's website. <laughs> but it's, it's my name, so it's perbyland.com. I'm also very active on Twitter, where I try to do a lot of economics. And my handle is my name, so at perbyland. I mean, they, and they can get the book is available on Amazon and, and, and places online, but you can get the PDF if you go to mises.org slash primer. So it is M-I-S-E-S.org slash P-R-I-M-E-R. Wonderful. We'll link to all that in the show notes. Pear, thank you again, man. Thanks so much for having me.